Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. Hello, my name is Sigrid Nunez, and I've published four novels, including A Feather on the Breath of God, Four Ruena, and my most recent novel, The Last of Her Kind. I was born and raised in New York City, where I live now. Further information about me can be found at www.sigridnunez.com. The Last of Her Kind tells the story of two women, Anne Drayton and Georgette George, who's usually called by her nickname George, who meet as freshman roommates at Barnard College in 1968. Anne is from a wealthy New England family and has had a very coddled upbringing, and George was raised in a very poor and unhappy family in a bleak town in upstate New York. Anne and George develop an intense and complicated friendship, and the book follows them over many years after they leave college and go their very different ways in life. There's a third character important to the story, Georgette's younger sister, Solange, who runs away from home at 15 and has a series of adventures at the peak of the era of the counterculture. In the part I'm going to read, Georgette is in her sophomore year, and though often warned not to, goes alone to Riverside Park in Manhattan, where she's raped by a very young man, a man-boy, as she calls him. When it's over, she returns to the Barnard dorm. Anne's Room I had barely got out the story when someone knocked at the door. It was Anne's friend, Sasha. That wasn't her real name. I never knew what Sasha's real name was. But whatever it was, like so many others back then, she had given herself a new one. She must have chosen Sasha because it was Russian. She owned a gold bracelet from which dangled a single charm, a tiny gold hammer and sickle. She wasn't a student. She was much older. She was 26. I say much because that is how it seemed. We were all extremely conscious of age, and I remember how those who turned 20 that year were envious of those who could still call themselves teens. Sasha had been in grad school, but she quit in order to devote herself full-time to the revolution. She lived in a communal apartment on the north border of the campus. Now she knocked and walked right in before Anne could answer. I didn't like Sasha, partly, I admit, because Anne was infatuated with her. Anne called Sasha her mentor. Sasha was a genius, according to Anne. She had read everything and could hold her own with any man on any topic. She was striking, masses of dark, wild, wavy hair, a face whose heart shape was exaggerated by a deep widow's peak. But a thick, dark monobrow gave that face a stern, shaded look. Never without a cigarette, always in black, she liked to mix lace and leather. I didn't think she was beautiful, as Anne did. I thought she was witchy. I didn't think she was a genius. I thought she was a know-it-all. 
I didn't think she was a born leader. I thought she was bossy. Anne had told me Sasha was getting ready to go underground, and I was glad. Lately, she had been coming around a lot, and she and Anne were often together, which meant I was seeing less of Anne myself. She thought she could do that, Sasha, knock on Anne's door and walk right in without waiting for permission. She did not expect to find me there, lying on Anne's bed in tears, with Anne sitting beside me. She said, Hey, what's up? And when no one answered right away, Hey, no secrets, remember? Secrets are bad. She stood in the middle of the room, arms crossed high on her chest, waiting until we told her. Though she said, Wow, it was without surprise. She was the type who would never let herself be caught showing surprise at anything. Poor Anne had screamed when I told her. Sasha said, Wow, a few more times in the same unwowed voice, shaking her head, and she paced a little in the small, silent room. She was frowning the whole time, and with that monobrow of hers, a frown was serious business. Finally, she sat down, perching on a corner of Anne's desk. She lit a cigarette, an air of command about her. Sasha was in charge. Did you call the police? she asked, and was clearly relieved to hear we had not. Good, that's good, she said, blowing a smoke ring. The absolutely last fucking thing we need right now is the pigs. Anne had said exactly the same words to me just before Sasha arrived. But of course we were not going to call the police. At that time it was understood, no matter what happened, you avoided the police. We were not going to tell any school authority either. We did not trust authority, and that included college administrators. Trust in the police was, for us, no exaggeration. Like trust in the government or trust in the military, it was madness. And besides, calling in the police meant calling in men. One day, when I was no longer living on campus, a neighbor of mine, whose husband had beaten her, took refuge in my apartment, and we called the police. By the time the officers arrived, her husband had taken off, and they said there was nothing to be done. But before they left, one of them asked my neighbor if she was one of those wives who liked to get beat, sweeping away whatever doubts had been nagging me about not having turned to the police myself. I didn't have a scratch on me. I foresaw humiliation upon humiliation. Miss George, is it not true that you yourself approached the defendant with a smile and said hello to him? And you say he had no weapon. Miss George, was this really all you were wearing? holding the miniskirt up to the eye level of the jurors. I had heard that rape victims were often asked if they'd had an orgasm, and all that business about the aftermath being worse than the rape itself. Town without pity. And Manhattan was such a big town. I believed that if I reported the rape, I would not be able to keep it from my mother. I knew nothing about police procedure or crime victims' rights, but I knew Mama. Sasha said, You got an old man? Tending bar at the West End at that very moment, but I did not want to see him. Much later, I would think that maybe I had not been completely fair to Dig 
ruling out beforehand that he could possibly understand. But by then it was too late. We did not know each other any more. At the time, it was painful to think, to know, for I was sure about this, that he could not help me. I felt the same about my brother. I think it is fair to say that I could not bear to cause certain feelings that I thought both Dig and Guy would have if I told them. In situations like this, rightly or wrongly, a woman often ends up treating the men around her like children. I know this for a certainty today. Then I had just an inkling. I remember thinking also that my not wanting any part of Dig at this moment exposed a serious flaw in our relationship. But in fact, this was nonsense. Flaw? We had the kind of relationship much desired and much vaunted then, part of our generation's big social experiment. We were sleeping together, but we were not a couple. We were not even very close, and we were not faithful. We called it love. We called it freedom. A word about language. In those days, people, our kind anyway, used the word ball instead of fuck. You want a ball? A lot of guys would put it to you just like that. The hardcore took offense at make love and sleep with as uptight bourgeois euphemisms, the same people who'd mock you for saying, I have to go to the bathroom. I don't know how ball got started, but I would meet feminists who hated it and put it on the list of words they wanted banned. Though he never knew about the rape, Dig and I stopped seeing each other soon afterward anyway, and I did not miss him. Was he white or black? When I said black, Sasha looked at me as if I had given the wrong answer. Again, it was the same response I'd gotten from Anne. Yet another reason for not telling the police, who we believed would have been only too glad for an excuse to roar into Harlem and crack the head of any black man-boy they picked up on suspicion. Sasha hopped off the desk and crossed to the bed. I was now sitting up, and Anne was still beside me. Sasha sat down on my other side and started massaging my shoulders. She was wearing the bracelet with the communist charm. I could smell her hair. No one said, big hair back then, but that's what Sasha had. I could smell the hair itself and her piney shampoo and the menthol from her cigarettes, garlic on her hands as well as on her breath. Listen, she said, I know how you feel. It happened to me, too, and I was even younger than you are. Briefly, she told the story. High school, swim coach. I saw from Anne's reaction that this was news to her, and given how close she and Sasha were and how anti-secrets they both were, I had to wonder if Sasha was telling the truth. But immediately I was ashamed, remembering the cliché, the first response most people have to a woman who says she was raped is doubt. Trust me, Sasha said, you can deal with it. Just keep above it. You have to remember some things. First, you're still the same person you were before. And second, forget all this bullshit about how a woman never gets over it. You just have to be strong. It could have been worse. You're not dead, for one thing. This guy could have killed you. 
He could have done something to maim or scar you for life. It could have been a gang rape. You could have been a little girl. You could have been a virgin. All true. I had been telling myself these things since the rape was over, and I would do so all my life. The main thing now is you survived. This is a sick, violent society, a society that breeds this kind of act. Remember what Malcolm said after Kennedy was killed about chickens coming home to roost and how everybody jumped on him as if he were saying Kennedy had it coming when all he was trying to say was that America is full of evil and if you don't do something to stop the violence of Birmingham or Mississippi, you can't be surprised when violence one day comes round to you. You have to try to understand how something like this could happen. And you have to be aware that a whole lot worse is happening all over the world right this minute. Also true. You have to be tough. You can't just feel sorry for yourself. Anne said, Think of all those poor Vietnamese women being raped by American soldiers. The teachable moment. Sasha said, Did you get the impression this guy was a militant? No, he was just a kid. And I think maybe there was something wrong, because you know what Eldridge Cleaver said. There was a copy of Soul on Ice in Anne's bookcase. There was a copy in at least half the college bookcases in America. It was Radical Holy Writ and a national bestseller, named by the New York Times as one of the ten best books of 68. Sasha found the book and the page she was looking for right away. She read aloud the passage containing Cleaver's justification of his rape of white women as a means of taking revenge on white men. I was suddenly exhausted. I wanted to lie back down and sleep for the rest of my life. I said, well, this guy wasn't Eldridge Cleaver. No, Sasha said, slamming the book shut and holding it with both hands overhead like a football she was about to pass. Eldridge fled the country, man. He escaped. No way the fucking pigs can get their hands on him now. Is there nothing time cannot bring about? Five years later, Cleaver would return from exile in Cuba, France, and Algiers. He would renounce the Black Panthers and all his revolutionary ideas. He would become a born-again Christian, a fierce anti-communist, and a Republican, and would support the election to the presidency of the man who, as governor of California, had objected to an invitation to Cleaver to speak at Berkeley with these once famous words. If Eldridge Cleaver is allowed to teach our children, they may come home one night and slit our throats. Anne had an evening class. When she said she would cut it and stay with me, I shook my head. I knew how much Anne hated to miss class. But you shouldn't be alone, George. In fact, though I would have loved at that moment to be in my own room, I wasn't quite ready to be alone. But we had forgotten who was in charge. Anne, go to class. I'll take care of George. I said, I just want to go to bed. Sasha shook her head. Bad idea. Anne's right. You shouldn't be alone. It'll just make you brood. You should come with me. I have to go uptown to my parents' house. I'm taking the car. I have to pick up some stuff. You can hang out with me till I'm done, then I'll bring you back here. 
Anne will be back from class then, too. It sounded simple, reasonable. I looked at Anne, who clearly thought that, like all Sasha's ideas, this one was brilliant. I went along partly because I didn't want to be alone and partly because I didn't want to keep Anne from her class, but also because I was feeling guilty about not believing Sasha had been raped. The next part I'm going to read uh, comes a little bit later in the same chapter. I once spoke to a group of young women about being raped. This was years after it happened, when I had already been married twice and had had my two kids. I had made friends with a women's studies professor, and I had told her my story, and it was she who asked me to speak to the small group of young women, all of whom were doing some sort of research on women and sexual abuse. I did not want to do it, but she was my friend. I sat on my friend's living room floor with a glass of white wine, and I began by saying that things had been different in 1970. I explained that women were different then, that they could not have been as afraid of getting raped, for example, because at that time you saw women hitchhiking everywhere, even pregnant women and women accompanied by children. They went on the road and they got into cars and drove off with strange men. This at a time when rape, like all violent crime, was on the rise in America. And who in her right mind would do this today? I told them about the two hippie girls who'd hitched from Denver to Manhattan and crashed in our freshman dorm, and who, when we asked them hadn't they been afraid, said no, because if a guy wanted to ball, we'd ball him. I said that when I was finally reunited with my sister, who had hitched back and forth cross-country several times, she told a similar story, and we even joked about what a golden age that had been for truckers. You see, we could laugh about it then. But nobody in my friend's living room was laughing now. I told them about the lunatic fringe of the sexual revolution, who thought it a crime that anyone should ever have to resort to rape at all, and how Solange once confessed that for years of her life she would sleep with anyone who asked. It was political, she said, because for some, free love meant what it said, like air, like water, and no shame. And I told them how, at that time, you could find plenty of women who thought it rude or unfeeling to sleep with just one man if there were two men in the room. Still no laugh. I brought up Eldridge Cleaver, and how, though it was known he had raped black women for practice and then moved on to raping whites as an insurrectionary act, at least half the women I knew would have been honored to have sex with him. Sex with a black panther would have been the height of their dreams. I explained why I would not go to the police and why I did not want to tell my boyfriend and how I had not told my mother because it was only asking for trouble that. Everything always had to have been my own fault. But that was my mother and that was another story. I said it had been very interesting as the years passed to see whom I found myself telling and whom I did not, this friend but not that one, 
my first husband, but not my second. Later, my daughter, but not my son. I said I thought walking alone in that deserted area of the park after being warned not to had been irresponsible and just plain dumb. No, not that I was asking for it. Listen carefully. That is not what I said. I said, hoping not to be misunderstood, but fearing I would be, dreadfully so, that if I was going to be raped, and if there could be such a thing as a best time for it to happen, I had been raped at such a time. I said I was sure it had helped that at that particular time sexual intercourse had been demystified, that it could mean not just a casual but a meaningless act, something you might easily do with a person you didn't know or care about, someone you never intended to see again, someone to whom you were not even attracted, someone you might even dislike, someone you would almost certainly not have had sex with if you'd been less high or less lazy or tired. I cited Woodstock, the movie, the scene in which two very young kids are interviewed. We ball and everything, but like it's really a pretty good thing because there's plenty of freedom because we're not going together and we're not in love or anything like that, you know. I said it had probably helped also that there'd been so much craziness going on, the general madness of the day. And indeed, later on, when I looked back, I saw how the rape had ended up blending in, a terrible moment in a terrible time, but a moment, that was the thing. I said no, and again no, when they pressed me. I did not resent the way Anne and Sasha tried to play down what had happened and asked me to remember that worse things were happening right then in the world. God knows it was bracing compared to what I remembered my high school friend Joey Turco saying after his sister-in-law had been raped. That's the end of my brother's marriage right there, the whole thing. I said that when I looked back on my life, I could point to many things that had happened that had been worse than being raped, and that all those worse things had, though the truth was strange and bitter to me, made the rape into a minor event. Then I told myself to put down my glass and not drink any more wine. They told me I was in denial. They told me I was intellectualizing and that I clearly still had a lot of emotional work to do. They told me I had repressed how bad the rape had actually been. Here is another memory from that spring a woman accidentally walking in on her roommate to find her and her boyfriend lying in bed. Later, the woman's voice all derision as she reported, they were still wearing their underwear. How we groaned. What sort of silly bourgeois lovemaking was that? Taking your clothes off one piece at a time was considered ridiculous then, as bad as turning out the lights. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.